0: Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Job, the second chapter. Last week we started a series on Job, and uh, we saw in the opening chapters that Job was the godliest man of his day, uh, that he is singled out uh, by God as a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and shuns evil. Now that doesn't mean that he was perfect in the sense of that he hadn't broken God's law. All have sinned and have come short. And Job acknowledges this himself in many ways as we go through the book and we find him offering sacrifices, which is a way of acknowledging sin and looking to God to forgive through this sacrifice, which Ultimately, pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have Satan and God uh, in a conversation in the opening chapter where uh, God uh, points out to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That he's a perfect and an upright man. And, and uh, Satan's response, God, you cannot take any glory for that. Satan, uh, Job only serves you for what He gets out of it. You bless him. You built a hedge around him. You won't let me touch him. And uh, you have blessed everything he's put his hand to. No wonder he serves you. But if you let me take away the possessions you've given him, why then he will curse you to your face because he doesn't love you for yourself. God says, all right, Satan, I'll let you sift him. I'll let you try whether he's a hypocrite. I know better, but I'll let you try You can take everything he has, but you cannot touch him. And uh, Satan goes out, and we have a series of terrible calamities befalling Job. He loses all of his possessions in terms of his livestock and so on, and then his children and grandchildren are killed in one sudden fell swoop when they're all having lunch together. Job responds by rending his mantle in an expression of grief, falling on his face and worshiping God instead of cursing God. And he says, The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord instead of cursed be. Amazing response. Satan and God again converse. God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, God, the test, was not thorough enough. Let me touch him, not just his possessions, but him, and he'll curse you to your face. God says, all right, but you can't take his life because then the the test wouldn't be a valid test. Satan goes out, and the next scene, Job is smitten with terrible uh, skin, with a terrible skin disease. He breaks out and boils, and uh, he loses his help. He goes out and sits apparently on the city dump. It refers to him as sitting on ashes on the ground. And his wife at this point just cannot stand to see her husband suffering like this. And she says, do you still retain your integrity? He he uh, is still trusted in the Lord. She said, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women. You're not speaking like yourself. You're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we receive good at the hands of the Lord and not evil? And in all this, Job sinned not, neither charge God foolishly. Tremendous response, but the test is not over. Three friends arrived, and this is where we pick up today. Uh, we have the coming of Job's friends in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, uh, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamanite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now these men are eminent men. Uh, They are from three different countries, apparently. Job was an international figure. He was the greatest man in the East. They could have had business dealings with him, but they're close friends, the type that he would normally turn to under such circumstances. They've heard of the calamity. They made an appointment, came together to mourn with him and to comfort him. As we uh, read, these are godly men. They are wise men. They uh, are... Men who are men of age and experience. Eliphaz in chapter ten, verse chapter fifteen, verse ten says, "With us are both the gray-headed and very aged men, much older than thy father." These were men of some station in life. Uh, their purpose in coming to mourn with Job and to comfort him—true friends, very broken-hearted—and when they come, they have real empathy. With him, In uh, verse 12, it says, When they lifted up their eyes afar off, and knew him not, his countenance was so changed, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every man his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Really empathized with him. There's the coming of his friends and the cry of Job. He now opens his mouth and he utters a classic cry of self-pity. He says uh, in uh, verse 1, After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. He curses the day of his birth. Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Oh, that that day had never been, he says. I wish I'd never been born. doesn't curse God, but he curses the day of his birth. Or that being born, I had died at birth, in verse 11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Or if he could just die now, verse 20. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it, and more than for hid treasures. He lets his hair down with his friends, and he just pours out his heart and his grief, and he wants to die. Now at this point they begin to counsel him, and the rest of the book, up to the last chapter, is taken up with their counsel, and his response to their counsel. And it follows a pattern where each of the three men, first Eliphaz, and then Bildad, and then Zophar, speak, and he answers each one. And then they start the cycle again. Three times this cycle is repeated with some small variation. And uh, what I'd like to do is to look at the counsel of these men and then Job's response to it. And to look at it by uh, just looking at the argument of Eliphaz and then Bildad, just sample the argument and see their counsel, the essence of their counsel, their point of view as to why Job is suffering. And their point of view is that he's experiencing God's chastening. Let's pick this up in, for instance, Eliphaz's argument in chapter 4. Verse one. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Verse three. Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was fallen, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest. It says, Job, you've counselled many men in the past who are undergoing something akin to what you're undergoing, and you gave good counsel. Job, you need to apply it to yourself. Now, he's not being sarcastic. He's saying this is the solution. Uh, their basic premise, verse 7 of chapter 4. Remember, I pray thee, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now, here's their basic premise. ever perished being innocent, when did an innocent man, a man who was walking with God, a man who was serving the Lord, when did he ever really perish, undergo awful hardship? Now, he has ordinary troubles, but when did he ever have really serious troubles like your experience? If he was really walking with the Lord, when did the innocent suffer or the righteous perish? And I've seen this, those that sow and plow iniquity, those that do wrong, reap the same. God punishes them. A basic principle, they say, of God's government is he blesses the righteous man and he punishes the wicked man. You're experiencing punishment, you must have done something wrong. That's their thesis, that's their basic premise throughout. Now let's... uh, Pick this up in Bildad's argument in chapter 8, verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, 8, three, Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Job, God, only does what is right. He will not do anything unjust. It would be unjust for God to punish you if you had not done something seriously wrong with this kind of punishment that you experience." So you must have done something seriously wrong. Otherwise, God would be unfair. Verse 4, if thy children have sinned against him. Job, your children died, didn't he? Well, there's only one explanation. They must have sinned. If your children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. If thou wouldest seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty. Go to God in humility, Job. Turn and walk with him. Verse 6. If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Job, if you were not doing something wrong, it wouldn't keep going the way it is. You must be sinning grievously in some way, some secret sin. Now that's their argument, that's their point of view, and they make progress in pursuing this as they press it more intensely. When Job doesn't accept their explanation and he affirms that he hasn't done anything real wrong, then they, they feel that he is denying a basic premise of the faith, and they press it more vigorously, and before long, They are accusing him of the grossest things. Their view of what Job should do is brought out in the 5th chapter and the 17th verse. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrected. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Job, you're experiencing God's chastening for your sin. And the thing for you to do is not to despise it. Don't take it lightly. Don't rebel against it. Repent. Turn from your sin. Ask his forgiveness. Acknowledge it. Confess it. And if he would just do that, here would be the result. Verse 18 of chapter 5. For he maketh safe, he maketh sore, and bindeth up. He woundeth, and his hands make whole. He's wounded you, but he will make you whole if you'll just repent. Verse 19, he shall deliver thee in six troubles. Trouble will come to all of us, but he'll deliver you in that trouble. You won't really suffer as you've been suffering. Yea, in seven there will no evil come to you. In famine he will redeem thee from death. When other men are perishing for want of food, he will see you through it. Uh, And in war from the power of the sword, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue, neither shalt thou be afraid of the destruction when it cometh. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh, neither shalt thou be afraid of the beast of the earth. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with thee. All nature will be in harmony with you. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace. Thou shalt visit thy habitation and shall not sin. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great. God will multiply your descendants and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. Isn't that ghastly? In the light of what he's experienced with the loss of his children and grandchildren, all of them. God, Job, if you just repent now, God will give you more children than you can number. And you'll live all your days in peace. You'll experience the good life. Verse 26, Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age, like as a shock of corn cometh in his season. They said, Job, we're certain of our counsel. Verse 27, Lo, this we have searched it, so it is. Hear it. And know thou it is for thy good. Just do it, Job. Now, we see their their view of the problem and the solution. Now, Job's reaction. What is the consequence to Job of this type of counsel? Well, he desires death more than ever. Now, as we might think, verse 8 of chapter 6, Oh! that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me. If I could just die, he says. His defense is determined. Verse 24 of chapter 6. Teach me, and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Job says, I have not done anything real bad. I have not. You point out this grievous sin in my life that you're saying that I must have done that's brought all this on me point it out and I will listen to you his depression is deepened you know it's pathetic they come and say Job the reason all this has happened to you is sin now repent and he it would be great if he could if he could just Repent and everything would work out. That'd be wonderful. But he can't invent some sin to repent of. It's just it's tragic. And they have unwittingly not only increased his pain, but played into the hands of the tempter. What was Satan's great effort? Satan's great effort was to get Job to curse God, to deny God. And they claim to represent God's cause, but they misrepresent God's cause. They say, Job, the reason all this has happened to you is your sin. God, if he dealt with you otherwise, if you haven't really been sinful and he dealt with you like this, that would be to pervert justice. Now, we know God won't pervert justice. Job says, I know that I haven't done anything real wrong. And if you say that if I haven't done anything real wrong, and God were to deal with me like this, that it would be unjust on God's part and cruel on God's part, then God must be cruel. You notice how it tends to really undermine his confidence in God and lead him to do the very thing that Satan was trying to get him to do, not to trust God, not to serve God, not to worship God, as it twists the character of God. It presents a distorted image. It makes God appear to be torturing him for crimes that he did not do. This, this becomes the very heart of the temptation as they keep urging this home. And this, they become Satan's greatest instruments as this is prolonged. Now, uh, we see the coming of his friends and the cry of Job, the counsel of his friends, the consequence to Job. What is the correction to their views? Where did they go wrong in their view? Is it wrong that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked? Is that wrong? That sounds good to me. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. They that sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. They that sow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Isn't that what they said? In Deuteronomy 28, you had God promising Israel right along these lines. He said uh, to the nation, "'It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city.'" Blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, and so on. All these blessings. But if you will not hearken, it shall come to pass that uh, all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field, and so on. That sounds like the argument that his friends have advanced. What's wrong with the argument? Where's the defect? There is a defect. Because in Job 42, God finally responds. And God says about these friends, they have not, he says, my anger flares against them, for they have not spoken that which is correct about me, about my dealings. Where is the error? You have an interesting, different view to that expressed by Job's friends and by Deuteronomy 28 in the 73rd Psalm, when David struggles with some of this. In the 73rd Psalm, here's what David says, Truly, God is good to Israel, and to such as of a clean heart. But as for me, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For there are no bands in their death, their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compass them about as a chain. Uh, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly. Concerning oppressions they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. They say, How doth God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they increase in riches. David says, When I saw that, oh, it was a stumbling block. My feet were well nigh slipped as I looked at that. And I thought about myself. He says, "Uh, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. And wash my hands in innocency. All the day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. I look at them, these ungodly men who prosper, and nothing happens. And I think to myself, I try to walk with God, and I have all of these problems. And what's the point? He said, but if I voice this, I'll be a stumbling block to other believers. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. As a contrasting view to Deuteronomy 28. Do right, be blessed. Do wrong, suffer. David says, I've done right and I'm suffering. I see men who do wrong and they prosper. How do we fit this together? It's true... That whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's true. It's true as a general rule in this lifetime. That whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's always true in the long run. That whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And David was given to understand this. He says... When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end, the long run. How, uh, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How they are brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terror. They prosper until they die and then They drop into hell. The long run, they reap what they sow. And in the long run, for myself, says David, a totally different future. He says, my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my heart. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was like a dumb animal before thee. I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Whom desire I on earth but thee? My flesh and my heart faileth in all of these trials. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he gets the right perspective, that in the long run, a man always reaps what he sows. In the short run, most men reap what they sow, but there are exceptions. God lets there be exceptions where an ungodly man prospers. And it's that exception that stands out so vividly and tends to throw us. And uh, in the short run, some godly men suffer seemingly totally out of accord with their life that they've lived. In the long run, that works to their blessing, and they are blessed. But in the short run, uh, they're suffering extremely. Calvin says this He says, uh, If we want to understand the book, we need to, here's a key. We need to understand that Job has a good case, but he pleads it poorly. His friends have a poor case, but they Read it very well. What he means by that, Job has a good case. Job is convinced that a man doesn't always reap what he sows in this life, that God doesn't punish every evildoer the exact extent of his evildoing and reward every godly man the exact extent. Not every godly man is going to experience blessings in this life in terms of externally, etc., but he may suffer very bad. Job is convinced of that, and he's right about that. But he doesn't plead his case well. He gets excited. He gets frustrated. He begins to question whether God is really dealing fairly with him, almost seems on occasion to set himself in opposition to God and to speak irreverently. He doesn't plead his case well. His friends have a poor case. Namely, they're saying God always in an exact amount blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked in this life. They have a poor case but they plead it very well. They speak of the holiness of God in tremendous terms, and God is holy. They speak of the sinfulness of man. They speak of God's justice in punishing sinful men. And they say that a man reaps what he sows, and that's true. All this is true. They plead their case very well, but at the heart, they have a wrong case. Now, uh, we begin to understand the nature of the book and how it works. There is a suffering which is due to chastisement for sin. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's a general rule. Happy is the man whom the Lord corrects. That's true. And most of the suffering that you and I I experience probably is of that nature. But it's not always of that nature. There are other types of suffering. And in Job's case, the great suffering that he experienced was of a totally different nature. So There's not always that way. There's a totally different kind of suffering when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the truly innocent sufferer without any sin. He suffered more than any man has ever suffered. His was of a totally different nature. His was vicarious suffering. He was suffering as a substitute for you and me. He was undergoing the punishment we should have undergone For our sins, the guilt of our sins, when his soul was made an offering for our sin, to quote Isaiah 53. A total different kind of suffering that no other man has ever gone in exactly that nature. He alone could suffer for our sins, be a substitute, because he alone was innocent. He alone was God the Son. And this was the plan so that God could be just, who always is just. He could be just when he forgave us sinners. And, of course, our part to actually be forgiven is that we must acknowledge our sin, repent of our sin, all of us have sinned, repent of our sin, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our acceptance of God. Not trust in the fact that we haven't been too bad, but trust in Christ who died for our undone sinfulness. That was the nature of Christ's suffering. Now, and that also is the source of strength. His suffering equipped him to succor us. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. You know, it's important, as we conclude, to have a theology of suffering that's correct for our own sake. When you suffer, how are you going to respond? You should respond by, number one, saying, Blessed is the man whom the Lord chasteneth. God may be chastening me. That is a basic principle of the way God deals. He may be chastening me. God, is there something in my life that you're not pleased with? And is that what you're saying by these troubles that have come into my life? And if something comes to mind, you feel like that very possibly is it, deal with it. Repent of it. Turn from it. Ask his forgiveness. By his power, put it out of your life. But if nothing comes to mind, you say, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and nothing comes to mind. Then you say, well, God, I don't know why this is happening to me. But I know my source of strength, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I look to him to enable me to bear with this and to trust you. I do trust you in spite of this. The thing you must never do You must never say, God must not love me since I'm suffering in this way, or God is not fair. Listen, if Jesus Christ died for your sins, if he went through hell, literally, for you, God loves you. There's no question. That can never be questioned. We must never allow ourselves for one minute to doubt that, no matter what we're experiencing. We don't know why we suffer often, but we know God loves us. For our own sake, we need our theology of suffering straight. And for the sake of others, we need it straight. Someone suffers, and you go as the friend. And you may never want to go as a friend after reading Joel, but you go as a friend, as you ought to go, and you try to comfort him. What do you say to him? Do you say, what did you do? <laughs> you need to raise the issue. Because he may have done something. And so you say, Blessed is the man whom the Lord corrects. It is a general principle that God chastens us. Could it be that you've done something that God is speaking to you about in this way? Hear the rod in him that appointed it. Could it be? Have you searched your heart? Could it be that you're not really a Christian? Could it be that you've never really surrendered your will to Christ, never really trusted in him? I was like that. I was not a Christian. Suffering played a part in my becoming a Christian, you might say, if it did. C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone to raise the dead. And oftentimes, I asked a class the other day, how many of you came to Christ through suffering? One-third of the class raised their hand. Often, that's the way he gets our attention. But, That's not always the case. And once you've raised it and the person says, No, I I don't know of anything that that God is arguing with me about. I'm not conscious of anything that I've done that's particularly wrong. I do trust in Christ as my Savior. I have surrendered my will to him. I am seeking to serve him. Then you say, Well, we don't know why this happened. I don't have any idea. We may never know why this has happened. But I do know what to do. Let's apply to God. Let's go to him. Let's trust him anyway. Jesus died. We know God loves you. Let's apply to him. We have a high priest who cannot but be touched with the feeling of of our infirmity. Let us go to his mercy seat and obtain grace to help in time of need. Don't think this has happened by accident. There are no accidents. God controls all things. Job didn't say... Uh, an accident has happened to me. He said, The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. We say, Job the devil. Job says, The Lord, because the devil couldn't do anything apart from God letting it happen. God's in ultimate control. Trust him. There's a poem that expresses it. Well, I think, I have no answer for myself or thee, you would say. I have no answer for myself or thee. Save that I learned beside my mother's knee. All is of God that is and is to be. And God is good, let this suffice us still, resting in childlike trust upon his will, who moves his great ends unthwarted by the ill. He will accomplish his great ends, no matter what obstacles stand in the way. He will bring good out of this. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to his purpose. Are you suffering? Could be God's chastening. Have you sought, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me? Have you turned if he's shown you anything? If it's not that, are you questioning his love? Won't you just? Trust him, don't you know he loves you? If Christ died for you, if you're suffering, have you considered whether possibly it's his megaphone to raise the dead that you've never really committed your life to Christ? Could be that. Many people, it works out that way. If you've never committed your life to Christ, do that today. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed and. Uh, If you're a Christian and you've been suffering and maybe questioning his love, why not resolve no longer to question it, but to trust him, and that he means it for your good, even though you may never understand it. Trust him. If you feel that possibly you're not a Christian, you've never really committed your life to Christ, why not do that right now? Pray in your heart like this, Lord Jesus, I hear that megaphone, Lord, I trust you to forgive my sin on the basis of your suffering for me. I surrender my will to you as my master. Come into my life. Amen.